Welcome to Daikaiju Network Presents Toku Zone. I am your co-host, Kent. No, Tommy, I am Kent. And with me is your other co-host, Jason. What's going on, peeps? How's everyone? Damn it, Tommy, and that's Jason. <laughs> I couldn't even, I couldn't even so hear that. We... So. <laughs> <laughs> so here we are. Um, this is our very first official Toku Zone. Uh, anyone who has been listening or following us for a number of years knows that a number of years back, uh, I think maybe, gosh, we, you have to go back to maybe 2017 uh, for the last time. We did uh, Toku Zone stuff. It was a sub segment of our show. And, I thought it was a um, little bit. You I thought it was a little bit earlier than that. Well, I think the. Well, we didn't start. I said the last time we probably had it. Well, was, I wasn't. I wasn't talking about starting. I was talking about the last time we did it. But um, it, this is actually the first time that we've done a or created a separate show. And gosh, in about seven to eight years since we originally started out with uh, Total Access, which eventually transitioned to uh, DKN commentary. Yeah, and kind of the here's kind of what to expect and we sort of uh, said this on, on a previous uh, episode or two but just to catch everybody up especially if you didn't catch any of those episodes is that we decided that for a while we wanted to do something a little bit different that covering kaiju movies and stuff we have covered almost all of the kaiju films in our collection at least some of the main ones and a few obscure ones. Um, we'll never be able to cover everything just because not everything has an official release here in the States, nor can we obtain some of those films uh, anyways, even if we wanted to. Um, so we were, we were kind of winding down with some of the general discussion pieces. And on top of that, uh, some of the films that we had remaining, Jason did not have yet. And so we thought with this break, it would give Jason an opportunity over the coming months to maybe acquire some of those films or to figure out ways of uh, being able to view those films. So when we do come back to general discussion, he'd be able to view those films so we can well, discuss them. As, as of um, right now, currently, instead of spending that time getting some movies, I've been spending some some time getting some he-man stuff <laughs> currently <Yeah. laughs> priorities i guess um and, but we do have a ton of commentaries left to do i mean if you take a look at um you know i i, I created a document a while back as far as like movies we have left to discuss and then movies left for commentaries and the commentaries is like three four times bigger than the discussions um so we have been doing quite a few commentaries for a while now. I mean, we've probably done more in the last nine months to a year than we probably have done over a period of two or three years. Yeah, because um, I think because I think this year alone we might have done a total of three to four episodes from the general show. Yeah, and I would like to. Have at some point kind of transition over to try to find some other films or something for general discussion but like i said we've kind of wind down quite a bit to this point uh there are some exceptions um uh to that and, and jason and i are going to try to figure out logistics to that as we move forward but what you can expect really for the next eight to nine months and this is assuming that we follow the same formula that we're starting here today which is we're covering three episodes of johnny sacco per episode 
uh, and assuming we have an average of two podcasts a month, you're looking at about eight and a half, nine months for us to go through this whole mm-hmm. thing. Uh, the There may be an exception, obviously, to December for our end of the year episode that always tends to be a really big like three plus hour show where it just about anything goes yep. and so that will be very likely an exception to the rule here uh, but we just wanted to do something different we wanted to cover tv series and we thought about the general discussion but we thought on some level it could take us an awfully long time, which meant that you know some of these shows, like the original Ultraman had, what, 39 episodes? Return of Ultraman, I think, had like 52. Ultra 7 um, had 56, you know, I believe. It, yeah, a lot of it so can we vary. Do those, yeah, and we thought if we did those with a general discussion, like with the movies, we watch them, we come into, and talk about them. If we did that with the series, I mean, we're having to bust our butts over a two-week period, if not longer, uh, to produce podcasts. And that likely meant either burnout on our parts if we try to squeeze everything in a two-week period or significantly fewer podcasts. And we didn't want to do either one, so we thought, why not go back to – the Toku Zone, which again was a sub-segment of our former shows, and then make it a kind of a, another big brand for our general podcast. So that way, as what we're doing is we're covering X amount of episodes per podcast. We're discussing each episode as we go along, giving our general thoughts and reviews on each episodes uh, on each episode, and then once we get done with everything, then we'll have a big giant general discussion on everything. Because in that way, we aren't burning. Out and we're still producing shows on a regular basis. And I think, too, especially when it comes to TV shows, um, while it's great to talk about shows as a whole, I think uh, with TV shows, you really need to look at the many different mm-hmm. parts. It's not like a film where it's one big thing. Um, uh, TV shows are a collection of many different things, depending upon how many episodes. Well, I know there when are. it comes to and, these uh, older shows, they're a little bit of like. A thing onto itself, episode per episode, whereas some of the newer shows these days, you can kind of say that there's some continuity per each episode. And as well, when it comes to um, the Ultraman franchise itself, and maybe a common writer that there's probably some cotton, there's at least some continuity between series per series themselves. Yeah, and so it's just easier and I just think more manageable for us and even for you, the listeners, to be able to just kind of follow along with us on this gradual journey through the the shows. And Johnny Saka was the first one we wanted to do. It's been uh, three and a half, almost four years since the last time I saw it. We'll kind of get into general thoughts about that. It has been several months Um, since I last watched it, (laughs) which took a little over maybe a year, year and a half to watch the entire series. Or a 26-episode yep. series. <laughs> but it's so strange because I did the math and I'm like, okay, well, roughly how many episodes do we want to cover per podcast? And we kind of were throwing in anywhere between three to five. And I kind of was thinking maybe four, but then I was doing the math. I'm like, okay, assuming we do like two podcasts a month, blah, 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 blah. I was wanting to do four, but then because – I got young kids, and now they're starting school this next week, which is going to be even harder for me to watch and prepare for these podcasts going forward now. Um, 
I kind of like, well, let's do three. Yeah, it's going to take us like eight and a half, nine months, which kind of sucks, but it's manageable. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, too, I thought as well, look, if, if something comes out, like let's say Godzilla vs. Kong does come out at some point as we're covering Johnny Sacco, we will have an episode interruption to cover that. Uh, or if we decide to maybe take a one or two episode break uh, to discuss uh, you know a, a film we haven't covered yet or to do a commentary we will do that so it's not like we have to necessarily stick with this continuously to the very end but we kind of want to to do the best of our ability but if we feel like we need to kind of take a quick break or two mm-hmm. then we will do that but um but yeah, so uh, with that, did we? Did you have any uh, Tokusatsu related Well, before news? we get into some of these other tidbits, uh, I just want to uh, shout out or uh, mention about our streams, uh, streaming networks and podcast networks that you can find us on. As far as uh, streaming networks, you can find us on... Uh, Obviously, YouTube, Twitch, Facebook Live, Periscope, and DLive. And as far as the podcast networks, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and TuneIn. And then as far as uh, following us uh, and subscribing to us on these uh, following social uh, media links or uh, websites, uh, Find us on these following ones. Just search for Daikaiju Network. And you can find us over at our own website at daikaijunetwork.com. And uh, let me get back to the main cam here. And uh, some of the news tidbits, uh, I was just sort of going through uh, some of the things and um, some of the newer stuff I've been finding out recently is just a lot of the common Rider related things. And it seems like that there's a, a new common Rider um, coming out here soon called Common Rider Saber, who's been officially revealed. And there's uh, other figure news as far as Common Rider and then uh, Bandai uh, releasing some uh, Ultraman figures such as Ultraman Tiga. But um, if I can find this uh, next cam here, the one thing I wanted to find out, which I think it was a bit... Uh, Intriguing that on Tokushoutsu here coming in November is going to be streaming Ultra Q here. And I think uh, if I can go to this here, that uh, Shout Factory it has uh, acquired the streaming rights from uh, Ultraman or the properties of Ultraman in partnership with Mill Creek. That um, in the next few months that they're going to be streaming uh, the original show Ultra Q on their uh, exclusive Tokushoutsu uh, channel, which I'm guessing it is, I think, on uh, Roku, uh, actually Pluto TV, and then it seems like there's a channel number 848. So uh, that's probably the one, the unique thing. So if you're Obviously, if you're a Ultraman or fan or 
Twilight Zone fan or anything of that sort, I would suggest if you haven't seen Ultra Q yet, I would suggest uh, taking the time to watch this entire series that's being streamed by uh, Shout Factory on their Toku Shoutsu channel on Pluto TV. Here, so um, otherwise, um, as of right now, I'm just seeing a bunch of oh, uh, just uh, figure related news, mainly pertaining to eight uh, SH figure arts. Um, now, not not necessarily ex- uh, exciting new news going on right now. How about your end? Well, uh, I don't have any tokusatsu-related news. However, I do want to um, talk about a a very fun new product that just got released this week. A lot of you probably are aware of it. It is – no joke, this thing is heavy. And sorry for anybody who is not viewing this uh, via the the, – video versions but you can go to youtube or those other uh other places and fast forward to this point if you really want to see but i will do the best i can to help uh listeners who are listening to the audio version it is this bad boy it is the gamera the complete collection from arrow video this thing is heavier than (laughs) shit um it really is like I, I mean I, I expected a little bit of heft from it, but not th- this is heavy. Uh, when the Amazon uh, deliverer uh, dropped it off, it was in a bigger box than I was expecting, and I went to go pick it up. And I swear, I think I uh, let loose a couple of vertebra <laughs> uh, in my back. Uh, this thing is a hefty bugger. Um, I want to say this thing is probably what maybe anywhere between maybe. Two and a half, three inches thick, maybe. Um, but I want to get into some of the finer details here. So please indulge me for a little bit here as I walk you a little bit through this collection, especially. By the way, this thing is already sold out on Amazon. Uh, this thing sold out here day and a half, two That's days just ago. Ridiculous. <laughs> it's crazy, but at the same time, you will understand why as I walk you through some of this. Um, this is an incredible set. So here's. The little insert for all the movies. Artwork obviously done by Matt Frank for anyone who is not familiar. So I open it up here. And right there, you have the first two discs. Uh, And the discs are – the artwork done on the discs are also done by Matt Frank. You have the original Gamera there at the top. And on the bottom, you have a disc. And I think this one has a couple. Yes, this one has both Gamera versus Barogon and Gamera versus Gauss on it. By the way, these discs are kind of hard to get out of the sleeve, even when you do have fingernails. I'm not but, really surprised look, at look all. Look at how thick these Look at how thick each page is. Like this is incredibly thick, well done stock. And then you have the next page here. The disc on top is Gamera versus Veras and Gamera versus Giron. Um, and then on the, the final disc on this page, anyways, you have the the Jiger, Zegra, and Super Monster, uh, uh, all on one disc there. So. 
um, as far as these page thickness or everything, um, how does it compare to the uh, Criterion collection of Godzilla? Oh, it's okay. thicker. It's thicker. <laughs> and then you have uh, Guardian of the, the Galaxy and Gamera 2 okay. there. And then you have Gamera 3 and Rebirth of Gamera on that side. And then on the back, you got a couple of pockets with like little extra info or cards, fun collectible art cards for each film. Nice. You got that. Um, let me get into some of the specs, I guess, here of the films since, you know, we're kind of pertaining to that. And I kept the one piece of cardboard here that was attached to it. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of them, but just to kind of give you an idea of what's included with some of these things, uh, every single movie has a commentary. So, um, well, I'm not going to show this to you. I'm just going to read off of it. Um, <laughs> uh, however, if you did buy the Shout Factory DVDs of the first Gamera and Gamera vs. Barugan, and they had the commentaries with August Rigoni on them, those are still on here, but there are no new excuse me, commentaries for those two movies. So there's that. Um, but just to kind of go through, you know, just – I mean there's a lot of extras included with each film in this whole set here. I mean it's, it's ridiculously awesome. Um, so each film obviously is a high-definition 1080p transfer however it's not it's i think it's the telescene transfer which means it's not 100 percent high definition but it's still sort of a high definition mm -hmm. transfer so um like for example with gamma the giant monster there is um uh, a uh, special feature called gamma special an hour-long best of compilation supervised by noriaki yuasa in 1991 uh, they also included a high definition transfer gamma the invincible the american one um and uh, let's see here uh, let's go down to a different film um, with Gamma vs. Barogon. Uh, they have included the American edit of Gamma vs. Barogon, which was not included with the Shout Factory edition odd number of years back when they uh, released that. Uh, they also have on that disc, because Gamma vs. Gauss is on that disc, uh, there's a commentary by Stuart Galbraith IV for that particular film. Uh, each film also has introductions by August Rigoni. August Rigoni spends X amount of minutes sort of talking briefly about each film and stuff. They actually go on longer than you might think. I was actually uh, pretty uh, presently surprised. Um, like with Gamera versus Veras, you have a new featurette with actor Carl Craig, young White Eisenhower, <laughs> uh, showing his views and props from the film. Uh, highlights from the GFS 10 convention 2003 featuring Noriaki Yuasa and Carl Craig. Uh, the fourth Jamboree, a promotional film for the Boy Scouts of Japan, directed by Yuasa in 1966. Um, and by the way, uh, there are there is at least an English dub, if not the English version of each film included uh, with each thing too. Um, so uh, the Heisei series has a three-part documentary series with each film, um, starting with Guardian of the Universe. It's called A Testimony of Fifteen. Years Part One, then Gamma Two obviously is Part Two. Gamma Three is Part Three. Um, 
one of the great things that I love, and I don't care because I already own it anyway, but I just like the fact that it's included. Uh, they, for Gamera 2, they included the Lake Texarkina. Oh. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Uh, there's also behind-the-scenes featurettes for all three of the Heisei films. There's even some deleted scenes for some of those as well. Uh, obviously, trailers and gallery images for all of these films. Um, let's see here. Uh, um, I mean, my gosh, there's just a ton of stuff with this whole set. I mean, I mean, I could sit here and spend like a half hour just reading all of this. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I'll stop right there. I mean, but look at this. Uh, I mean, this is all the information of all the stuff that's included in this set on the discs. I mean, this is absolutely incredible. I mean, I just – I'm still – so floored as to what we get here. So the next thing included in this set is a hardback edition of the entire Gamera comic collection. Nice. Including the four color Dark Horse comics that were produced in the, I think, mid-90s. And I think, uh, if I remember correctly, Matt Frank uh, had a Gamera comic he made but I think it was only released in Japan, and that's kind of the first comic that's featured here in this in this set. It's 120-ish pages of Gamera comics. Nice. I mean, it's hardback, quality paper. I mean, this is it's got that wonderful hardback <laughs> smell to it. I mean, this is just incredible. Uh, again, I, I just am still speechless. And another great thing, 80-ish plus, pa plus page book um, of just, like, information on all the I films. I so, like how they incorporated the non-existent um, Gamera villain on the very back of the cover there. Yeah, me too. From the test footage so like there's a history of gamera that kind of starts everything off then it goes in to talk about each of the individual films um including the american version of gamera the invincible so you know and it's got cast and crew information there a little bit of a brief plot synopsis of each film at the very top and bold and then the rest is sort of kind of a, a brief um, look as to how the um, um, entire film was made. By the way, there are three versions of Gamma versus Virat. Really? Um, one is, yeah, let me go to the back here because there is a section. Oh, by the way, there is a section with Noriaki Yuasa in, with an interview in here. Oh, and some of our favorites, X-ray posters. <laughs> Of all, I always, I always like those. I think that they're a bit unique. I like them too because I think it's the same artist who's done some of the like these uh, ones with Godzilla and then Mech Godzilla and some of the others. The artist is Joy Joylin Joylin Yates, I believe. Uh, and then there's a. Uh, a, an, an essay called Inside the Heisei Trilogy by Norman Anglin. It's pretty decently long here. Uh, bringing up Gamera, 
Uh, it's a kind of an essay that was a, uh, published in Fangoria number 191 back in April of 2000. So you got a Fangoria article. Speaking of Fangoria, I, I remember picking up the one issue where they talked about uh, the Godzilla versus Space Godzilla one yeah. many years ago, like in the mid-90s. And I remember that they talked about it so much, but then it just took like several years for that movie to come <laughs> over here to the States. <laughs> oh, I know. It was just amazing. And then here's an a guide to the English language camera uh, because each um, there are some of the camera films that have multiple English dubs like Gamma versus Gas for example has two different dubs and I think a couple other films do too but this walks you through each film a little bit about each of the dubs and where to find them on each disc so Veras, like I was telling you there are three different versions and they're all included on this set uh, let's see here the original theatrical version, which is 72 minutes, is on here. The director's version, 81 minutes, which is on here. And the U.S. television version, which is 90 minutes, which that one was the one that was on the Shout Factory. That one was the one that had like 18 minutes of stock footage when Veras captures Gamera and they probe his brain and his memory. And they show you all those fights from Barugan and Gauss that basically padded the film. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the theatrical version, that 72-minute version, doesn't have that at all. The director's version has the Barugan fights, but not the gas fights in that scene. So those are kind of the really the differences between the two versions. So if you want a more, more sleek version, the 72-minute um, version is, is the way to go um, with that. I, I mean, so, yeah, I mean... I could spend a long time going through this, but that is the set. I mean, it's 130 bucks on Amazon, or at least it was on Amazon. This is what the Criterion Collection for Godzilla should have been. Um, I don't want to poo-poo on it because, again, I think if you're someone who, with the Criterion Collection, missed out on some of those um, classic media, Sony... Um, um, Kraken releases, although I think the Kraken ones are still around. Yeah, they're um, pretty recent. I think the most recent one before yeah, the Criterion one. Yeah. Um, it's still a good set. It's better to have those than nothing at all. Uh, but the problem with that set, and I had talked about it, I don't know, a number of months back when I bought that Criterion set, I believe only like five or six films, uh, including King of the Monsters, the first film, uh, only had English versions uh, of those Godzilla films. Otherwise, they all were in Japanese subtitled. Mm-hmm. Uh, the special features, I thought, um, were – they have some old special features from earlier releases, like Criterion had um, a commentary track, I believe it was with David Callett for Gojira. That's on there. Um, but I don't think they have all the special features, interestingly enough, from that original release, because I think it was a two-disc release when they originally acquired the rights to that odd number of years ago. Um, and then they have um, several other features, which I went through a couple of them. Uh, they were nothing all that special, sadly, uh, so I was very disappointed in that. Uh, but the biggest sort of 
special feature, quote-unquote, uh, for this entire set is the Japanese version of King Kong versus Godzilla. And I know even a lot of hardcore fans never obtained a, a copy of that film. Uh, I did <laughs> a number of years ago. And, uh, and I think he might have uh, given that one to me if I remember. <laughs> I really don't know, but anyway. <laughs> but, um, yeah, um, for me, that wasn't a selling point either, and I can understand for some people uh, buying that set just to get that film is a huge selling point, which um, kind of sucks because then you're spending 130 plus dollars depending upon where you get it just for one film. But that film is significantly different from the U.S. edit, so it is kind of nice to have. Um, but otherwise, I thought that set, you know, it was a book. There was a, a book included with it as well that. Uh, each section was written by Ed Gajuszewski, uh talking a little bit about the production history of each of the, the Showa-era films, and then you had 15 different artists commissioned to do artwork for each film too, and some of that art is just absolutely gorgeous. Um, and I don't mean to you know, demean that Criterion set. Again, I think if you are someone who missed out on some of the classic media and Sony releases, uh, which if you find them are going for exorbitant amounts of money right now, unfortunately, um, this is still a good set to have. But again, be forewarned, there are only like six films where you get an English dub or an English version of the films, uh, which is disappointing really. I'm not a huge fan of subs. But if I have to go with that, then I will. Um, so that's a downside. And then, of course, too, like us, if you did buy those films uh, back in the day as they were coming out, this that set was something that wasn't necessarily worth diving into. And the reason why I bought it is, one, I'm a completionist. I, uh, I you know, Godzilla is one of my top. You know, three hobbies. And uh, on top of that, I was curious about some of the special features. Like, were there any cool special features that I didn't have that might uh, teach me more about the Showa era Godzilla series? And then I also was very curious about the information written by Ed Gajuszewski. Um, and as good as that information is, it's information you can find in several other books that are written in the English language. Uh, so unfortunately, I really learned nothing new uh, about any of those films. Uh, part of that, though, too, is because I've been immersed in this um, in this hobby for many years, and I've read many different I've read a handful of books multiple times, and I have a big collection of G-Fans back here. I, I've read through most of those as well. Um, so, you know, I, I just am – I consider myself decently well-versed in terms of some of the general behind-the-scenes information on most of these films. Um, but again, I, I, I don't want to poo-poo that set. But this camera set, which roughly – goes for about the same amount of money as that Criterion set on Amazon. The, the, this Arrow set by Gamera, uh, it, I mean, uh, this Gamera set by Arrow is phenomenal. Like I said, I could spend an entire show just going through this. It is phenomenal. I went through um, the other day with my son. We watched Gamera the Brave with the commentary uh, by Keith Aiken and Bob Johnson. That was really good and informative. I learned a lot uh, by listening to that commentary. 
And then yesterday I tried also going through the Gamma versus Gauss commentary with Stuart Galbraith. Unfortunately, because I'm taking care of small children, I was exhausted, so I got only halfway through that one. Um, and I intend on finishing it hopefully in the next few days. But um, it's a phenomenal set, guys. I mean, I, I wish Criterion Criterion, again, that's a good set. This, though, this Gamera set by Arrow, that is just out of this world. I, I really hope that if Criterion continues and maybe does something like with the Heisei era and or the Millennium era of Godzilla films, um, that they try to do something similar uh, with that. And... Um, it's a, it's just incredible, guys. You, if you can find it and find it at a reasonable price, pick this thing up. The reason why this thing is sold out is because word got out quickly that this set is exceptional. I pre-ordered mine six months to the day, <laughs> and I it, it shocks me to to remember that it was six months ago I pre-ordered my copy. Mm. I mean, time has just flown this year for obvious reasons. Well, but unfortunately, I it's. I didn't pre-order uh, the set or anything because, you know, I mean, it looks really nice and everything, but I've got, you know, fortunately probably like the same the same thing on Blu-ray that was done by uh, Mill Creek Entertainment here a few years back. So I was like, I mean, it's nice and all, but then with the huge box set that comes in, I mean, I can't even fit that. <laughs> in in a uh, case like that so um i'm just well no i can't fit mine on yeah. there too like my criterion godzilla sitting down there on the floor next to my black shelf this one is gonna barely fit in between my two cases here but so. yeah <laughs> I, I think i'm just for right now i'm just gonna stick with uh, the Gamera Godzilla production with the with the Gamera set that I currently have that was uh, released by Mill Creek a few years ago, which I've got almost all of them, and I I think I don't. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I do have uh, Gamera of the Brave on Blu-ray, so I'm I think I'm good for the time being with that part. But um, one the one thing I just wanted to. Uh, show if I can here is uh, just what I mentioned a little bit earlier about the Kamen Rider thing. I was trying to find a photo, like a good, decent photo. Um, you can see it here in the corner uh, of this uh, screenshot here of uh, the new Kamen Rider saber and everything. It's sort of kind of the recent trend that they've been doing recently of having these uh, suits or armors about half uh half and half with different colors or everything just make it look more unique it's sort of kind of the design of like fire and uh and everything it's just it looks really sleek compared to some of the other uh coming rider uh designs that we've seen in the past and even some of the uh tv shows or movies that we've seen on uh, the GFS channel over the years. But uh, yeah, so that's a uh, common writer saber that I'm not sure if they have an official release date for that because they just announced that here uh, last month. Um, and speaking of which, uh, 
Toei is going to be doing this, and it's sort of a, a nice transition to what we're going to be mainly uh, talking about here in just a couple minutes. But um, and they've got a official trailer out, so it's uh, Common Rider Saber uh, officially will be beginning here on um, September sixth of uh 2020 here so um kent uh he said that um he's going to be doing something here in just a couple of seconds so um with that um as he's going to be doing something here i can probably discuss a little bit about coming rider saber here uh while he's uh, taking care of a couple things here that uh, this is uh, this press release was brought out just at the end of last month here, and you can probably see it uh, at least a f- few paragraphs here. That uh, last night was the official Toei press release for the newest Kamen Rider hero, so we now have a plethora of new information on the adventures of Kamen Rider Saber, and the series will be directed by longtime Kamen Rider veteran uh, Takayuki uh, Shibasaki, not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, Uh, while the main writer this time around is Takuro uh, Fukuda, previously known for uh, Kamen Rider Ghost, which I'm not sure if that was a previous uh, installment before this new one or a few installments uh, back. But uh, now we've got uh, Kent back here. So Yeah, I forgot something. <laughs> All right. So we ready to dive into Johnny Sacco and his flying robot. Yep, we sure are. If I can get to the main cam back here, there we go. <clears throat> All right, so uh, we're going to do on this episode just a little bit of history uh, of this series, and then we're going to dive into the first three episodes of the series. We're going to do a brief um, plot summary or synopsis of each episode and then review and discuss. Um, As I was doing research for this show – I was finding, you know, some interesting tidbits here and there, but then I started thinking, I'm like, wait a minute, I think my DVD set uh, came with a booklet that had information on it, and so I checked, and sure shooting, uh, there is a booklet in there uh, with a wonderful essay written by August Rigoni, and I read through it, and I go, this is better than anything I was finding on the interwebs. Uh, I did find one thing on the interwebs that I thought um, was uh, a bit interesting that I don't believe was mentioned in August's essay. At least I didn't see it um, in there. So I included it um, what? when I get done here. So Well, I know, well, I know um, I've got mm, uh, looked, looked at a few other things, and I know I've got a little bit of notes here and there. As far as the series itself, it was, it's originally titled as Giant Robo. In Japan, yep. and also is uh, produced by Toei Company, which is best known for the anime shows such as the Dragon Ball franchise and One Piece. And, uh, Golden and also, Bat. it was interesting to find out that it's uh, based on a manga by the same name uh, by uh, 
meets you Teru uh, Yokoyama, uh, which is a manga series that originally was serialized uh, from May 1967 to March 1968 with a total of three volumes. And the author is famously known for creating uh, Tetsujin 28Go, which is also known as Gigantor here in the States. Um, and then, of course, it was originally uh, aired on TV As- Asahi from October 11th, 1967 through uh, April 1st of 1968. And then, obviously, brought here to the States by uh, Ruben Guberman, uh, developing the American version of the show, um, produced by uh, American International Television, first aired in the States in 1969, and AIP TV peaked in distribution from 1971 to 1974 and was syndicated through uh, the early 1980s. (laughs) I was going to read this essay, (laughs) (laughs) and some of what you said is included in this essay, but I thought I would read this essay. it is a few pages long, so please indulge me for a bit. But I thought I went through most of this essay, and I thought this is just too good to, you know, not include in our discussion here. Uh, so again, if you'll indulge me for a few moments, I'm going to read through this essay by August Rigoni, uh, titled "The Making of Johnny Sacco and His Flying Robot," and it came with the uh, DVD set. So some of you may have already read it. So again, please indulge me for a few moments as I read this wonderful essay. Being able to control your own giant robot to combat the minions of evil might be one of the greatest boyhood fantasies of all time. Add to that top membership in an international peacekeeping organization and being able to tote your own pistol and you get Johnny Sacco and his flying robot. Now before you say, that sounds a lot like Gigantor, of course it does. They were both drawn from the prolific pen of manga artist uh, Mitsutero Yokoyama, like you just said. Yep. Probably the best known of Yokoyama's work outside of Japan, Iron Man number 28, was produced as an animated series in 1963 by TCJ, the same studio that brought you Eighth Man and Prince Planet. Some of the quotes he – I mean not the quotes, but the parentheses he has in here. I'm not going to read all of that, Uh, which was localized for the U.S. market by Fred Ladd as Gigantor. Extremely popular on both sides of the Pacific, the story concerns a boy, Shotaro Kaneda, who in Inherits a 66-foot robot controlled, 66-foot remote-controlled robot blah, <laughs> uh, from his late father. Originally constructed as a weapon to turn the tide in the war, Iron Man is used by Shotaro to fight in the name of justice and peace. In 1966, with the explosive popularity of Subarai's production special effects-filled series Ultra Q, followed by Ultraman, Toei Studios, having already established the strongest television production infrastructure in the business, didn't waste any time jumping on the bandwagon. Following the footsteps of Ultra Q and infused with the popularity of yokai monsters, Toei decided to produce a live-action ad- adaptation of the best-selling manga Lil Devil by the undisputed yokai scholar. A beguiling mix of magic, mirth, and monsters, an atmospheric monochrome, the rating success of Little Devil can be attributed to legendary Toei producer 
uh, Toru Hirayama, who began his career as an assistant director, then helmed three films of his own in the early 1960s before being transferred to Toei's burgeoning television production department. This is where he made his mark. Hirayama is recognized as the father of Toei's myriad of special effects uh, productions, including the Kamen Rider and Super Sentai franchises. If it were not for Hirayama, these shows, including foreign localizations such as the Power Rangers, would not exist. Next, Hirayama delivered a double whammy to television viewers within a few mere weeks after the last episode of Little Devil, both premiering in March 1967, one set in the past and one set in the future. Red Shadow, the Masked Ninja, is a wild, weird, wonderful tale by Gigantor's Mitsutero Yokoyama. Imagine the zaniness of the Adam West Batman series, the steampunk anachronisms of the Wild Wild West filtered through the magic serpent, including giant monsters, and you might have an inkling of the delirious cathode acid trip that is Red Shadow, the Masked Ninja. The insanely popular series ran for four 13-episode chapters and was even edited into several feature films that were popular throughout East Asia. Hot on the heels of such series as Lost in Space, Hirayama produced an un- unashamed adaptation of Edmund Hamilton's pulp hero, Captain Future, with a 24-episode series created to fill the gap between the end of Ultraman and the premiere of Ultra 7 for the Tokyo Broadcasting Service Network. Running from April 16th through September 24th, 1967, Captain Ultra reads like a 60s Italian space opera as told through the eyes of a gauche Hopefully I'm pronouncing that word right. Color-saturated post-war Matagogo pop art Japan. It's a wild, wild planet for children with a heaping help of giant monsters. These three series with Hirayama at the helm set the course for what uh, was to become Giant Robo slash Johnny Sako. The impact of Ultraman was being felt even while the series was in pre-production. After Ultra Q helped to ignite the first monster boom, the competition was already cranking on their own uh, out their own superhero series. The first one out of the gate was P Productions, The Space Giants. The Nippon Educational Network, who also produced Little Devil, wanted their own answer to Ultraman, and Toei's legendary chief of television production, Noriyoshi Bulldozer Watanabe, put Hirayama in charge. Hirayama was just the man to create such a series and transform it into something more. Watanabe told Hirayama that he wanted a cross between Daimajin and Iron Man number 28. I wanted to work on something with a colossus in the form of a symbol of power, Hirayama recalled. My first attempt was the monster Perorigon in Little Devil. Afterwards, I created several giant monsters, but not a giant hero, which seemed to fascinate children so much. So we started to work on a protagonist in the mold of Ultraman, but another human-like hero didn't sound as interesting. Eventually, we decided upon a robot which would respond to a child's will. After all, the audience would be primarily children. Famed NET producer Shinichi Miyazaki recalls the early planning stages. Quote, Lil Devil had a very humanistic approach, so we went in a completely opposite direction with a mechanical approach. Until that point where we're only thinking and I'm making a special effects version of a popular anime, such as Iron Man number 28. However, to just rehash that series would be boring. We started with group discussions and planning sessions on what to do with an upgraded version to be called Giant Robo. Naturally, we wanted to completely update its outward appearance, and we wanted to have its electronic brain connect with a young boy in order to create a character with emotion, unquote. 
This was the premise for a new type of super robot given to Mitsutero Yokoyama from which he would weave a new story, working closely with Hirayama and become the foundation for the series Giant Robo. The basic structure centered around a young boy, Daisuke Kusama. Daisaku Kusama. I just, man. <laughs> an agent with the Unicorn International Police Network battling an evil organization known as the Big Fire Gang. As their ultimate weapon to conquer the world, the BF Gang builds the atomic power giant Robo. But instead of a robot that can be manipulated by anyone via a remote control box like Gigantor, a single voice recorded into Robo's electronic brain is the only authorization recognized. Daisaku becomes the, the one voice when he speaks into the remote control device hidden in an ordinary-looking wristwatch. Yokoyama's manga adaptation in the pages of Shoga Kukan's Shukan Shonen Sunday, a boys' Sunday weekly magazine, would run concurrently with the broadcast of the television series from May uh, 1967 through March 1968, with three story arcs told in 39 chapters. The manga story would not feature the giant monsters and robots created by the BF gang in the series, but there would be two, quote, brothers, unquote, for Robo to contend with, GR2 and GR3. A titanic octopus tentacle... Um, which became the monsters in the first episode of the series, and a colossal finds flying stingray robot. Yokoyama was credited as the story author, while the first 12 chapters were drawn by Satoru Ozawa, supported by Hikari Productions, with the remaining chapters drawn uh, by Yokoyama and his assistants at Hikari. I think we're just about done here. Oh, shit. No, we are. <laughs> How's it going? Pillow Master 420. The TV version would take a different direction with the same basic premise. And in order to keep the kids watching, as with Ultraman, the series emphasized a different plot and new monstrous threat from the BF gang. After Daisaku bonds electronically with Robo and defeats the first monster, he is inducted into Unicorn, an international police force which has more in common with Uncle than Interpol. In the 1960s, secret agents were all the rage. Promoted by the James Bond film, setting fire to screens both great and small across the globe and infused into the heart of giant Robo. Hirayama's idea was to combine the organizations from the Man from Uncle and Ultraman to create his vision for Unicorn. Interestingly, Unicorn and Uncle employ similar pen communicators, and one of their secret password queries is Napoleon no Kiri Furuwa, which translates to Napoleon's trump card is question mark <laughs> with the response being Daya no Junko which is King of Diamonds Napoleon is a reference to Robert Vaughn's character and uncle Napoleon Solo while the response comes from the title of the uncle stories the King of Diamonds affairs this must have gone over the heads of the English dubbing crew since the US version the password query becomes Napoleon Cold code four with the response being 806 giant robo is full of the trappings of the spies genre which was at an all-time high during the swinging 60s on the deployment of unicorn over the jsdf and giant robo hiriyama says i always thought of unicorn as more of a secret peacekeeping agency rather than a strict military organization and this would be a far more acceptable reality than a conventional army i think i would feel rather i think it yeah, I think I would feel rather strange if it were just the real-world military fighting the forces of Emperor Guillotine. While the BF gang, which became the Gargoyle gang in the English dub version, had outrageous, bizarre, over-the-top villains, 
fore, uh, foreshadowing future Bond antagonists such as Jaws, Hirayama encouraged the writers and cast to depict Unicorn as a warm, family-like unit. Aww. This was a theme inherent in almost every show of this type produced by Hirayama, such as Kamen Rider and Inazuman, where the military is largely out of the picture, replaced by benevolent secret organizations created to counter the threat to peace. This may be a response from his own anti-military sentiment in the aftermath of the Pacific War. All of his series seem to bear his stamp. Hirayama's own worldview, which even though is it's filled with monsters and villains, still seems like a kinder and gentler reality to live in. Since the monsters are n- never ourselves, but external and purely evil forces. Yeah. <laughs> I'm reading an essay behind the scenes of Johnny Sato. Yep. <laughs> the lead role of Daisaku Kusama slash Johnny Sako went directly to 10-year-old Mutsunoba Kaneko, who had just starred starred in Little Devil. Newcomer Akio Ito was selected for the role of Juro Minami Jerry Mano. Originally, the role was given to Nenji Kobayashi, who had played the alien sidekick in Captain Ultra, Joe of Planet Kikero, but as Robo began shooting, a theatrical featurette of Captain Ultra was rushed into production, rendering Kobayashi unavailable. He did, however, have a cameo in the final episode of Giant Robo as the sniper Tarot Man. Joining Toei in 1963, Kobayashi enjoyed a tremendous career and has been featured in such films. Uh, I'm not going to go over that stuff. We'll save a little bit of time here. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yumiko Kariyama, who played Mitsuko Nishino, had these memories at the start of the production. Quote, at first, I was the only adult female member of the cast, and I love everyone, especially Kaneko-san, who played Johnny Sako. It was really hot that summer, and I remember that those uniforms we wore were really stifling. Ito-san, who played Jerry Mano, would be so sopping, excuse me, after his action scenes, and I would be thinking, Mr. Road Wardrobe Supervisor, while I may be dry now, I'm just waiting my turn. Um... Oh, damn it. <laughs> you done? <laughs> <laughs> Bear with me here. I I, uh, I kind of forgot how long this was. I just have a couple more pages here. I think it's interesting. I just hope everybody is learning something here. <laughs> and then there was the footwear. Those boots were really hot. Seriously, they were. But when we climbed to the hands giant robot they got into the big studio fans going i relied on that wind it was then that i finally felt as though i was brought back to life uh katayama (laughs) i'm just trying to get through this so people aren't bored if they are katayama enjoyed a substantial career after giant robo appearing in over a dozen television series spotlighted by the provocative action drama uh and it lists a bunch of films that don't matter here that that doesn't matter either um, let's see it's going into some of the background of some of the people who worked on it which isn't necessarily what I wanted to cover here Okay, we'll start here. In regards to the monsters and machines of the BF gang, the sheer variety and type of enemy combatants who squared off with Robo was in and of itself unique. While the competition seemed to be losing momentum with originality in their monsters, in comparison, Giant Robo's production designer certainly created something original and memorable. They also didn't rely on the man-in-suit technique and alternated uh, with creatures that were animal, mineral, and vegetable alike. 
Credit must also go to the crew who built and operated them, whether through foam rubber or wireworks. While Robo himself had static features, somehow the human expressions of anger, joy, and sadness amazingly and mysteriously materialized through the fiberglass and rubber costume worn by Toshiyuki Tsuchiyama. Robo's unique body language was strong and an intense personality, coupled with invincible power overflowed from his body. The very mechanical and symmetrical shape of Robo his human-like features and movements and the variety of his enemies changed the fighting strategies in action. The Robo costume was very heavy and was hard to move around in. Of course, it was very difficult to act in too, but we all did our best, Tsuchiyama recalled. As stated earlier, Robo's electronic brain responds only to Daisaku's voice print. Over the course of the series, this electronic brain begins to exist its own free will. The main characters in the audience think together, learn together, and grow together. As Robo and the young Daisaku work together, their mutual bond deepens and a friendship blooms, stated Hiriyama. This friendship grows independent of the orders from Daisaku. Robo is no ordinary monster fighting machine. This is the greatest appeal of giant Robo. He is not merely a mechanical puppet. Robo himself, one could say, inspires platonic love. Okay, here's something about it coming over here to the uh, U.S. here. After the original series went off the air in Japan, it was picked up for U.S. distribution by American International Television, the boob tube arm of American International Pictures, where it was rechristened with the fanciful title Johnny Sacco and His Flying Robot. The English-language version was produced by Salvatore Bilateri of Titra Sound Studios in New York City, who farmed the job out to Floridian-based Capri International Films. Founded in Miami by Gene Prinz in 1961, the company spent its early years dubbing American television shows into Spanish for Latin-speaking markets and then dubbing foreign films into English. The first Japanese production they adapted was the TCJ animated series, Eight Man. And then it kind of goes in a little bit as far as some of the people in the U.S., um, who worked on distribution and marketing and dubbing? Can we just uh, <laughs> can we just cut it well, there? Yeah, I'm, briefly, <laughs> I'm briefly going through here, just making sure. That's really kind of about it. So, <laughs> well, well, I'm sorry. well, good because I kind of had forgotten how long that essay was. <laughs> but it's it's interesting. I mean, if you have the DVD series, this booklet comes with it. I would suggest uh, you go through it, even though I basically read most of it. Yeah. Um, and the one thing I wanted to point out while uh, looking up uh, this TV show is that uh, the series. Also expanded into OVAs, which is uh, an acronym for Original Video Animation, uh, in the 90s, throughout the entire 90s, and it composed of seven one-hour-long episodes. And then, um, back in the, the late 2000s, a adaptation 
a manga adaptation uh, came about, and it was called GR uh, Giant Robo, which was done by uh, Ryumati uh, Shiro from uh, 2007-2008 with only just one volume. And a uh, an anime uh, was done under the same name based on this manga, which uh, only lasted through uh, 2007 with uh, 13 uh, different episodes. Yeah, I'm glad you uh, covered that as well because I had that in mind. Yeah. All right, so we ready to dive into the well, episodes. Well, just to just, uh, end off with the whole anime thing, I saw uh, the opening uh, – like the intro clip to the, the 90s uh, OVA shows there. Oh my god, it looked so amazing. I just – I actually just want to watch it because uh, YouTube actually has some of these episodes – on there so i might have to take a look at some of these uh later uh on today or maybe sometime this weekend but yes let's uh let's finally get into the meat and potatoes here all right so episode one is titled in english dracolon the great sea monster or the japanese title is Decora, the giant sea beast. So Jason, I want to start playing a little game with you as we go through this series. Which title do you prefer more? The English one or the Japanese one? So for this episode, which one do you prefer? Uh, Probably (laughs) just go with uh, Dracolon, uh, the great sea monster. I'm kind of torn. Um... I do, I think, maybe like the English one just a bit more just because it almost sounds like Dracula. But but maybe it was like draw in there, but then it has colon in it. <laughs> That's very, very – you like the Japanese one? Yeah, I, what, one of the things I like about the Japanese one is that it has – there's something about the phrase giant sea beast that to me seems um, – ancient and yet maybe uh, bigger. And there's something about the um, suffix Cora from Decora that seems slightly more menacing in my eyes too. But Dracolon, th- that that just kind of gets me just a little bit more. Um, like I said, it, to me it sounds like Dracula almost. So here's a synopsis of episode one. Flying saucer flown by Emperor Guillotine from the planet Gargoyle comes to Earth and crash lands into the Pacific. Guillotine's mission? To conquer Earth. What else? Jerry Mano, a unicorn agent, befriends Johnny Sacco aboard a ship. The ship is attacked by Dracolon. Mano and Sacco jump off the ship, uh, escaping, and come across an island where they're being taken hostage by the Gargoyle gang. Mano and Sacco escape and come across Dr. Luke. Lucius Guardian, who constructed Giant Robot. And I know it's Giant Robo, but I'm just going to cons- call it Giant Robot. He is killed during a gunfight, but before being killed, Guardian tells Mono and Sako that the first voice Giant Robot hears through its communicator will be able to control the machine. Johnny immediately talks into the communicator, making him the commander of Giant Robot. Guillotine tells his commander, Spider, to unleash Dracolon after discovering Giant Robot is under the control of Johnny. 
Giant robot battles Dracolon upon arriving in Tokyo, and Mono gets into a gunfight with Spider and his goons. Mono is able to hold off Spider and Giant Robot without too much effort destroys Dracolon. And that concludes episode one. So, Jason, you want to start us off with a little with a little discussion of this episode? Um, so, with episode one, basically, obviously, sets up the entire uh, show, which we'll eventually get to uh, see over and over again, or the template for the next 25 episodes here. As far as uh, the main protagonists of, you know, Jerry uh, or Judo, whichever you want to go by, and Johnny, Daisaku, however you want to go about it, and then they confront uh, Big Fire, also known as Gargoyle Gang here in the States. And... um, yeah, so they just are are with the unicorn uh, organization, which is sort of a, a unique, crazy name in and of itself. Well, it stands for. Let me look in here because this was something I glossed over. Because, like I had mentioned, uh, it stands for United Nations Investigative Criminal Organization Response Network, which is a pretty long acronym. And of course, you know they stumble upon Giant Robo, uh, now under command of uh, Johnny there, and then they take the robot back to HQ, and then uh, Emperor Guillotine there uh, orders his henchmen to try to get back the robot and also bring out all these uh, weird monsters and as well as uh, Dr. Botanist, which we'll see or uh, listen to in uh, episode, I think it was uh, number three, the uh, yep, the last three. episode there. And I, what, what do you um, think of the the main antagonist in Emperor Guillotine and then eventually when we get into episode three, Dr. Botanist? Well, I don't want to cover botanists right now because um, we'll get to that here in a few moments when we get to that discussing that episode. As far as Emperor Guillotine, the guy is crazy looking, but at the same time, I love it. Uh, I'm someone who over the last five, six-ish years uh, has gotten more and more into classic science fiction and horror films, um, uh, both in the U.S. and Japan. And I bought most of my DVD sets and all that include movies and, and TV series that include all that. Um, I really enjoy the look, though. It's crazy as heck, but I do like it, and I like the personality of mm-hmm. him uh, as well. I find it amazing, though, and, and again, this is a kid show, so there are going to be a lot of these uh, – sheer coincidental moments and certain plot holes involved and that's just something we have to get used to but i gotta put on my critical glasses because i want to try to be a little objective here oh shit there was something i wanted to do before (laughs) we covered this too and i forgot to do it um we'll cover it when we're done with these uh, three episodes um but i uh i find it amazing how they just by sheer happenstance, stumble upon Dr. Guardian and and him just finishing up the final touches on Giant Robot. Uh, sheer coincidence. They happen to go down an elevator and boom, there's Giant Robot. <laughs> 
And Dr. Garden's like, shh. I've been in a gunfight with these guys for a few years. They want giant robot. But here's a communicator. Anybody who talks into a giant sock, giant robot. It's silly, but at the same time, um, I like it. I, I mean, trying to place myself into my four-year-old, five-year-old, six, seven, eight-year-old self, you know, that sort of thing – wouldn't bother me because obviously I wasn't sophisticated enough and and all that. But I mean, it's fine. I I, I just let my imagination run with mm-hmm. it because it's a, like a twenty three minute. And, then, TV and then also, it sort of has that similar uh, formula when it comes to the gamer movies in the Showa era there, where they have all like the kids as the main protagonists of those films and they seem to like know more or do more stuff compared to the adults so i think it sort of goes into that uh sort of setup yeah and i thought it sako seemed a bit too mature for his age because he's using a gun and using it effectively and then also being that to me is stretching and then also being the agent with uh the unicorn uh organization there and then they have a small like a young girl probably around the same age as uh johnny or uh daisaku no she's got to be like a couple years older she seems at least right around the same age i swear but um yeah they she's also part of the organization as well as and i would like to know the reason why she's also <laughs> part of the unicorn uh organization it's like what what has she accomplished i mean i can maybe understand with johnny sako because he's the only one that can uh control uh giant robo here but as far as her <laughs> Well, dude, it's I know. the first episode. We're not going to learn everything I know, in this first episode. Got <laughs> <laughs> got to put on those well, critical glasses, you know. Well, yeah, but it's the first. This is sort of like this whole 26-episode series is a continuity, um, even though the episodes in some respects are self-contained. Um, but I find it silly, though, too, that once – Giant Robot starts fighting Drake Colon, and Johnny Sacco is using his communicator to tell Giant Robot what to do, that Johnny also magically just happens to know all the capabilities of Giant Robot. Mm. Um, because Guardian was killed during that gunfight uh, uh, in that what underground you, you base think, on that island, and yet how did Johnny kind of know all the, the Giant Robot capabilities? What do you think of, uh, Dr. Guardian's uh, death scene there? It's funny. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it it is. Well, it just seemed like he wasn't really I, much in pain. All he just did is like <laughs> just sort of turn and sort of go back a little bit. And that was about it. Well, and when Giant Robot uh, flies Mono and Sako to Tokyo, we don't see Giant Robot drop drop them off anywhere because he what we see happen is robot is flying and then he lands and then he he immediately starts engaging with dracolon and so there that's kind of a weird cut scene moment too well, that also, 
I mean, again, you go with it, but... Well, what's also weird, too, is when uh, uh, Jerry and Johnny hitch a ride on a giant robo, he, you know, he lowers his hands down and then brings them up and then flies up. But then on the next shot, he has his hands going this way. It's like, where where the heck did they go? Did he just accidentally smash them or something there? <laughs> yeah, you, you, again, you got you just have to go with it. Um, I love Dracolon's design. Uh, it's a damn shame we didn't get to see more of it in its glory uh, until the final few minutes there of this episode. I, I really would have loved uh, to have seen more of it, uh, not just the suit, but even some more somehow, city destruction. Somehow it sort well. of reminds me as like a combination of, oh, uh, what's, what's that? Um, uh, the colossal monster that we just recently watched, and I don't think um, yeah. a little bit maybe Gauss just a tad bit, and then that one uh, sea creature monster that was in uh, Ultraman. I forget the name of that one too. Um, maybe in the facial structure, just a maybe just a bit. But yeah, it sort of has some similar characteristics from other um, areas of the genre. Mm-hmm. But um, right. um, unless you have something else to say, I, I'm ready to go into final thoughts on this episode. And then let's do a number grade on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being exceptional. What number would um, you rate the episode unless you have something else you wish um, as far as I can uh, see here in my notes, I think we just sort of covered basically everything uh, here. But as far as a rating from 1 to 10 just for this episode, I probably – I'd at least give it a 7. Okay. And do you have any final thoughts on it? Um, it's – as far as the final thoughts I get, um, it's it's at least a, somewhat of a good start to uh, try to lay some groundwork and a foundation for this entire show for the next 25 episodes. And it sort of gets to the point in certain areas, you know, as far as uh, – meeting the characters that we're going to be seeing throughout the entire show. You know, Johnny, Jerry, uh, Chief Azuma, and some of the others in uh, the uh, Unicorn headquarters there in Japan. And then, of course, uh, get to right away know who the main antagonist is and Emperor Guillotine. I really like... um, far as the designs during the days you know back in the late 60s there of uh giant robo and and as well as uh dracolon i i do like the designs of that um some some of the uh battles here and there um i think they're uh pretty good uh i think they could have done a little bit better um, some of the story is pretty good. Uh, otherwise, yeah, I at least give this episode a seven. 
One thing I forgot to mention that I think is pretty important, um, the costumes and then the salute of the gargoyles. Yeah, I, I was reading up. Hmm, a little uh, Third Reich. I was reading up <laughs> a little bit um, on that. I forget. Uh, trying to figure out where it was at. Um, yeah, I know I saw just a little bit about that as far as uh, some of the attire that they're wearing of like maybe a Soviet style type of gear, maybe, uh, especially with Commander Spider there. But yeah, it there's there's some a little bit of controversy here and there, but also there are some violence concerns <laughs> for the TV show as well during the, the 60s as well. So the thing is, the DVD set is strictly the English mm-hmm. uh, edit. We don't have the Japanese one, which is unfortunate, but having something is better than nothing. Uh, my final thoughts on this first episode is that it gives us just enough to understand the general theme of the series. An alien being with a gang sends out monsters and robots onto the world in hopes to conquer it with Johnny Sacco along with unicorn and giant robots standing in its way. It's a simple premise, but a lot of fun. I fall in love with the villains and their scheme and with our heroes in Unicorn. Sacco isn't quite the annoying kid we're used to seeing much of the time in these types of movies, and Mono is a competent adult sidekick who isn't dumbed down. The battle with Dracolong is disappointingly brief, and it would have been nice to see a longer battle and more destruction. Nevertheless, I am into the general storyline, and I'm ready for the ride to come, and I give it an 8 out of 10. All right, episode two. The English title is Nucleon, the Magic Globe. The Japanese title is Globar, the Demon Sphere. Jason, which one do you like more? I think I actually like the Globar, Blar, or whatever it was. (laughs) (laughs) For me, it's a no-brainer. The Globar Demon Sphere is, in my opinion, the vast. The Magic Globe just seems a bit too generic. I think, again, because you're talking about a very conservative United States, and we will see this with episode three. Uh, we'll get there here in a moment. Uh, but I think because it's called the Demon Sphere, Demon, you probably don't want your children to, you know, Demon, you know, like the whole religious thing going on. Um, I think that has a lot Although to do with, with it. the name Nucleon, I think it sort of makes sense too, but – Nucleon is better than Globar. Globar is unique, but too simple. But Nucleon, if they could title it Nucleon the Demon Sphere, then that's perfect. (laughs) Just just, uh, combine the two titles. There you go. All right. So here's the plot synopsis for uh, Nucleon the the Demon Sphere. I'm just going to go ahead and call it that. A meteorite crashes into Earth. Guillotine informs Spider that the meteorite is actually Nucleon, a creature he sent from space. Guillotine unleashes Nucleon. And with Johnny in control of giant robot, Unicorn asks Johnny to join the Unicorn organization to battle the Gargoyle gang, and of course he accepts. Jerry and Johnny inspect Nucleon and realize giant robot is needed to save a nearby town. Giant Robot confronts Nucleon. The Gargoyle Gang and Spider catch up to Johnny and Jerry and capture them again. They are taken back to the Gargoyle base. 
They plan to place Johnny under hypnosis, uh, so he will send Giant Robot out to do their bidding. Nucleon defeats Giant Robot and also takes it back to the gargoyle, ga- gargoyle base. Uh, Spider and his goons are halted on their way to the base by Unicorn. Nucleon attacks them. Johnny comes to comes to and calls Giant Robot to battle Nucleon once again, but this time, Giant Robot succeeds. Um, question. Did I miss something? It's – how did Nucleon get defeated? Because it seems like uh, Giant Robot like took Nucleon up in the sky and like did dropping it somehow. I think – Destroy it. Like it was very, um, very unclear. Yeah, it seemed like that the – that uh, giant robo uh, grabbed it, picked it up, probably flew it up in the air, and then uh, dropped it. But the one thing that I want to relate to this too, and I had some concerns as far as the continuity, which goes into episode three, which I know we'll get to here in a little bit, is that when Nucleon was dropped, the last time we see Commander Spider and the Minions was that they were going to the car try to run away because they noticed that uh, Nucleon was going towards them. And then Nucleon you know, collides with the car and exploding along with those guys. Right. So then you, you think, I wonder you think that right at the very end that they're completely dead. But then in episode three, spoiler, you see Commander Spider back. So there's <laughs> he's alive. To me, so far, that's the biggest hole in this entire series. It's like, how the hell did he survive that? Yeah, because I was sitting there and I'm like, wait a minute, I thought Spider was involved for a little while longer. Like instead of I just the so, first, I thought two so too. Up until and that I, point, it's like, oh, he died. <laughs> but then it, he was back in yeah. episode three. It's like, wait, I thought he died <laughs> from that. Exactly. This is something we have to get used to with this particular series. And again, uh, you know, again, when we cover either these um, kaiju, tokusatsu movies and and series, there are going to be plot holes. Some obviously have more than others. And I would actually, as much as I love this series, Johnny Sacco has to be placed in that category of movies slash shows that have some serious plot hole problems. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, and even myself included, in fact, I think I even said it here like five or so minutes ago, uh, was when I said um, it's a children's show. It's a kid's show. A a lot of kids, although I think kids would have picked up on this one because this, like you said, is so obvious. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of other things they wouldn't pick up on or necessarily – think too much about as they occurred um but again um at the same time i think there are just some plot holes that really uh should not have occurred right to begin with and this is definitely one of them um and again i'm not in that um essay that i uh, read earlier nothing was mentioned and i couldn't find anything online either that talked about production time of these episodes and given the fact that tokusatsu slash kaiju films typically had very short production periods i wouldn't be surprised if the individual episodes for this series also had very short production times like 
maybe a week or two weeks at best, I would assume, um, for everything. Uh, so it's very possible that as you're writing these things and trying to put things together, maybe as best as you can make necessary changes as you're filming, a lot of things are going to fall through mm. the cracks. And so I think this one, they, I'm almost certain they realize this was a big whoopsie but they were just like eh, we're gonna ignore it because <laughs> we need the spider guy around for a bit I mean, longer with your son being how how old he is right now i think he probably would have at least picked it up <laughs> it's like hey wait a minute nope. <laughs> he didn't because uh, he watched the three episodes with me and um he said nothing uh, of the sort when we got to huh. episode three. So, but yeah, I'm guessing uh, it could have also been a uh, an editing issue too. That I think he, uh, uh, Commander Spider was probably going to be sticking around for probably much longer than uh, some of these guys thought, and they probably tried to kill him off. Maybe the the edit part could have been towards the end or something. But however, I think that someone must have didn't tell them that he was going to be around for like for longer periods of time in this, this show and yeah that's probably some sort of uh editing process error yeah and another question i have and again it's a kid show this to me is more of a silly goof than anything else uh but again we've seen something like this quite often in this genre, and that is, uh, I understand that Giant Robot is a very powerful machine, but why always concern yourself with just capturing the robot? Why not kill Johnny and then attempt to reprogram Giant Robot? Because even if that doesn't work, no one will be able to control the Giant Robot. Uh, but the Gargoyle Gang will have the upper hand with Nucleon and other Kaiju and robots to come. So. Um, I probably would at least say at least try to capture him. Well, it's sort of what they sort of what they've done in some of the later episodes, which I know we'll get to uh, in future episodes where they, I think, try to capture him or make a duplicate uh, Johnny with the same recognition voice and everything. I mean, they've done they've gotten close to that but yeah it's like sort of gets to the point maybe just trying to like uh make some kind of other uh responder for it and then try to add some sort of device that overrides johnny's voice recognition and do it that way yeah i mean again it's a kid show not supposed to think too hard about it and you know if they were to try to do that johnny would have been dead long long before (laughs) now and then you wouldn't really have much i mean you could still technically have a series it just wouldn't be with johnny but it's the the original title giant robo (laughs) just go with that (laughs) yeah and Exactly. I, I mean, if I'm the gargoyle gang and, you know, I've been trying to find this robot and take control of it, and then I find out that it's under the control of a different organization, this little kid is the sole um, uh, kind of the, the leader, quote unquote, of this robot, uh, I would be like, okay, well, that sucks. 
but let's kill the kid, see if we can reprogram the robot, and if that doesn't work, oh well, we will dismantle it or destroy it somehow so nobody can have it, but yet we got all these other machines and creatures uh, either right now or are yet Mm -hmm. to come, and we still will be able to take out this organization and conquer the world. Um, Again, I know I'm I'm overthinking this for a kids show, but I feel like with our podcast, it's sort of our obligation to sort of dig <laughs> dig a little a deep deeper into this stuff to try to to not only let people know that we are very much aware of the shortcomings of some of these things, but also to just give people as much of an objective view of this as possible too. Because even despite all this nonsense. Sense, uh, I still love this show. It's an incredibly entertaining series. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, but I just, I want to, I feel like it's our duty <laughs> as a podcast to try uh, to, you know, to be as objective as possible mm-hmm. here. So, I got uh, one question. What do you think of uh, how Big Fire. Like the Big Fire organization, or also known as the Gargoyle Gang, the way that how they handle capturing both Johnny and Jerry there, and then once they uh, get ambushed by um, the other unicorn agents there, that they just all leave <laughs> Johnny and Jerry in the car and not have them like like their little sleeping agent that they knock them out with. That it didn't last long. <laughs> Well, and, and again, it's a kid's show, and Gargoyle Gang is very much like those two criminals from Godzilla's Revenge. They are bumbling buffoons, and so that's what to expect. Um, I think things will turn just a little bit starting with the next episode when Dr. Botanist comes in. But even then, we're still throughout this entire series going to have a bumbling buffoonery of uh, the Gargoyle Gang. But again, given the context of, of the target audience, they they suit their purpose. They they are by no means these great mastermind villains. Uh, however, I will say that compared to other TV shows, they're actually kind of a bit better. <laughs> like they're they're not great, but they at the same time are a bit better than than your average. You know. Well. Well, as far as some of these gains, how would you compare them to uh, some of the other uh, gains from other tokusatsu shows, such as maybe, for for example, the Shiranui clan from Iron King, and then um, and then I'm trying to uh, remember the other gain that uh, came about later on in that show. Um. Yeah, because you had like what four or five different villain gangs or, or, or organizations pop up in Iron King. Um, I here's the thing, and I think we discussed it not too long ago. Uh, I liked all the different um, gangs and stuff in that series, and more so the Shiranui, just because they were incredibly outlandish and goofy. Um, but I think in terms of competence. Um, I like Gargoyle Gang 
a bit more than most of those other gangs. And part of that is just because I, I find Emperor Guillotine to be more um, ruthless and malevolent than many of those other villains. And at the same time, too, uh, with this series, if members of the guard go again get captured by unicorn which we will eventually see they basically are told to commit suicide and they do that that doesn't happen with like some of those gangs in iron king or maybe some other yeah, uh, yeah the other series. the other uh gang that comes about was in uh the 10th episode of that series where they where the sheer nui clan got destroyed by uh phantom militia there mm-hmm. but, yeah or the phantom opposition party i must say and i forgot to mention this with the first episode i love the music for this series i do it like just it seems an awful a bit lot. simple and that's fine uh, again you uh, when you look at the target audience again um that's fine it does on some level some of the the riffs and motifs remind me of certain moments from um, uh, shoot I forgot the the composer's name but he did the score for Godzilla's Revenge Akunio Mia Miyuki I think was the guy's name uh, he also did of course what was it the Ultra Q and and Ultraman uh, if I'm not mistaken as well the the scores for those shows um, as well and I love those mm-hmm. scores. Uh, so, you want to go into final thoughts and a rating for this uh, episode? Yeah, let's go into the final thoughts. Am I going first? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> okay. Uh, this particular episode brings in more miniature work and action. However, there isn't as much to comment here, given that the episode only has a few beats to it. It is a pretty simple, straightforward episode. We forgot to mention that. Uh, While some plot holes begin to emerge here, I'm still very much with this series. My only real complaint with the episode is that it didn't appear as if Nucleon was actually destroyed. And also forgot to add that spider seemed to have died as well. (laughs) Um, Despite all that, I'm giving this one the same score as I did the first episode, an 8 out of 10. Yeah, uh, like you said earlier, as far as this episode, straightforward. I mean, nothing nothing really new. We just only see uh, like at the beginning this meteorite hits uh, the mountainside of this nearby uh, village. Uh, military scientists come in to study it, uh, see if it's radioactive here and there, and then we see uh, Guillotine, you know, trying to still get the robot, everything, so on and so forth. It's sort of kind of the sort of the beginnings of more of the formulaic template that we see throughout uh, the whole entire series. Um, yeah, I've get this. I like the uh, some of the uh, practical effects that they have in here. I like the simple design of Nucleon, which sort of reminds me more of like a deformed-looking uh, mace head or something <laughs> of the sort, <laughs> and also just sort of looks like uh, kind of like a atom or kind of like a virus cell or something shape and yeah and also just that whole ending scene there which 
you think that's uh, Commander Spider was in along with some of the uh, his minions uh, uh, get killed <laughs> off when Nucleon gets dropped on them and everything. And also, it's like, was that also the ending of Nucleon as well? But um, fortunately, it was. But then you get uh, you get the big question is. How how did uh, Commander Spider <laughs> survive that after we see him in episode three, which we'll get to in a minute? Um, but yeah, straightforward uh, show. Uh, the battle is, I would say, it's between Nucleon and Giant Robo is much longer than the uh, Dracolon one, although it was a bit weird having uh, Nucleon uh, transporting Giant Robo with him. Uh, not function, not in function. They're going to the base towards uh, Emperor Guillotine, but then, yeah, <laughs> kids show. But um, with that, mm-hmm. out of ten, I probably would at least give this a six, mainly because of the ending part <laughs> of the episode. Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely understandable. I thought about giving it lower, but because of the the miniature work and the amount of action, I'm like that kind of makes up for some of the shenaniganry of what's going on in this episode. Mm-hmm. So we're going to cover the final episode for this particular podcast, and it's episode three, and it's titled in English. The English title is Gargoyle Vine, a space plant, or the Japanese title, Satan Rose, the space plant. Jason, I I don't think I really need to ask, but I'm going to as a formality. Which title do you like best? (laughs) (sighs) Well... The second half still has space plant in there. Mm -hmm. But then as far as the first half of the title, I really can't think. Just by looking at the appearance of the monster, you might see a little bit of the rose, but you don't really see it much throughout the entire episode here. So with that, I think the gargoyle vine, to me, I think makes a little bit more sense when it comes. Oh, well, really? When, huh. it, when it comes. <laughs> I really thought this When it comes <laughs> to just the appearance of the creature itself. Because, I mean, it sort of makes sense with the rose part for that Satan rose for the original Japanese title. But you only see that maybe in a couple shots here and there. Otherwise, it's it's just more – it more looks like a vine. That's interesting. I, I thought you would have gone with Satan Rose. I'm going with Satan Rose uh, because it just sounds meaner. Um, but again, 19, late 1960s America, we don't want Satan Rose in our children's programming. So, But to me, I think – call it something different. Just, just by looking at the appearance of the creature itself, I think Gargoyle Vine – just the, hence the word fine. I think it makes it a little bit more sense with it. Gargoyle Vine uh, as a name is okay, but I can sort of understand why uh, you find it more sensical because it is more of a viney type of plant uh, in its final form. But yeah. So here's the plot synopsis or overview of Satan Rose or Gargoyle Vine. 
Dr. Botanist is brought in by Emperor Guillotine to uh, assist Spider and Guillotine in his conquest of Earth. Botanist captures Dr. Dorian to help spread the gargoyle vine, but he refuses. As a result, Botanist operates on Dorian so he will accept his commands. The vine is successfully grown and is placed in a coffee shop to continue its growing and to eventually attack. Botanist brings more vine seeds in for Dorian to begin their growth. Dorian refuses and Botanist orders Dorian's death. Botanist then steals Dorian's notes on the gargoyle vine to grow it himself. The lone gargoyle vine grows to extraordinary size and begins attacking Tokyo. Giant Robot is sent in to do battle. And after a long battle, Giant Robot destroys the gargoyle vine using electricity. Um, one of the reasons why I love this show so much is that we get these fun yet strange sub-bosses assisting guillotine yeah. uh, over the course of the series. Uh, all of these characters are unique, weird, and stand out on their own. I love Botanist. He is this silver-skinned, bald-headed, heavy-eyebrowed, narcissistic, well, cloak-wearing goon. Well, I mean, well, I the, just I love the this eyebrow guy. part. There's really no like eyebrow part, but like his brow area is just really extruding quite a bit but yeah it's like just sort of silver skin although the ear part like some of the earlobes and stuff wasn't quite all the way uh painted with the silver color but yeah i would say at least uh if you get the chance to look up uh, dr botanist um yeah it's it's just uh really unique crazy looking um individual in his own right but yeah it's i think i think by this time i think it's the show sort of starts to uh find its own little uniqueness in a way it does yeah um and and this episode, too, has a lot of funny, uh, goofy issues uh, with it as well. Hold on here. I want to find a, a picture of Dr. Botanist since you uh, were talking about it here a moment ago. I want to share my screen with you here because um, I think this particular picture of Dr. Botanist well, uh, is it, – it, says a lot uh, about this particular character and i and i love it an awful lot well um, i've bu- 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 i've got um a, a picture here um if if i can uh find it here and then put it on screen uh just give me one second but uh, why don't you discuss here while I find it. Oh, here it is. Okay, I'm going to share my Actually, screen. here, uh, let me uh, do it here because I just found one here. Uh, why don't you discuss while I do something here? Um, okay, so um, I do find it weird that when Dr. Botanist performs a surgery on Dr. Dorian – that there is no scarring on Dr. Dorian. And again, Here. though, why would they need him? See, this This is what he looks like off to the right. Just just a silver-looking 
bald headed <laughs> kind of alien yeah, there. I, I'm not seeing him on your screen. I'm I'm looking. It's it's on the uh, the the actual live feed here on YouTube and some of the other live streams here. Um, oh well, then I guess I got to go over there. He's off to the right here with a really extruding uh, sort of brow. And he has this really uh, like as far as the dubbing version of this, it's like the dub the dub uh, voice for Doctor Botanist. It's really unique in a way. And then, of course, off to the left or to his right is uh, Commander Spider, which you can kind of see sort of that Soviet-style headwear uh, that he has on there. But, yeah, (laughs) so that's that's Dr. Botanus. Okay, well, let me show you on my screen. Let me do a screen share. I'm not sure if I'll – if – uh, my system will be able to even pick pick up your thing, though. Do you see that right there? Uh, well, it's it's not even on the live feed, anyways. Oh, it's not. No, but but do you see it though? On my end, yes, through Skype, but but not on the live. And I like that, picture. but not on the live feed. That says everything. But yeah, I can at least uh, try to find that uh, similar page here. Uh, so why don't you continue? Yeah. And again, like I was just saying here a second ago, without the scarring of Dr. Dorian, that's uh, a weird sort of um, uh, deal that, that comes up um, as well um, with um, – shoot – uh, that that's a weird thing that kind of comes up here with this particular episode uh, in terms of like just a weird plot hole. And the fact, too, that if he's going to use um, – if the operation on Dr. Dorian only lasts a few hours, then how the hell does that work? Because when you cut into someone's head and you start messing with their head, that's – Basically permanent. <laughs> even a fool and around. Even though with Botanist saying that the effect for his uh, uh, operation only lasts for a few hours, <laughs> but then it's like, well, he tapped tapped into a guy's head trying to manipulate him. It's like, wouldn't that be permanent? <laughs> Right. I mean, it's just then why even bother with that? But it's so funny they have a saw right there um, anyways because, um, yeah, it just (laughs) – it's just really strange on how that works. I I don't know. They were anticipating on (laughs) – See on, on, on drilling. I mean, not drilling. Sawing into the guy's head. So if you can see on the on the uh, live here, here's another picture of Doctor Botanist off to the left there, where he kind of has that little smug grin of his <laughs> there. Yeah, I like that. That that's one of my favorite. Uh, that's one of my favorite things. Yeah. Whoopsie doodle. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> um, I do love 
Satan Rose. I like how it looks, and I think its cackle is incredibly creepy. Yeah, uh, as well. It's very. It sort of reminds me of the mushrooms from Matango because they had a real creepy sound as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It it sort of it sort of reminds me of some other thing, but I can't really pinpoint of what it was. Um, right now but yeah the the cackle from uh, the gargoyle vine is uh pretty interesting and pretty unique in a way sort of, yeah sort of like uh alien bolton although it's much like uh, yeah like godzilla productions said yep yeah although um the, the type of pitch is obviously much different. It sort of has kind it's kind of like a witch's cackle in a way. Just a bit, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then uh, also the way on how to uh, try to uh, cultivate or revive the actual plant from this meteorite or this this big meteorite or sea-like thing was a bit unique in a way. All it was just took uh, just, you know, pouring some blue watered dry ice liquid on top of it and then just taking to this other area of this lab, putting like red substance on it pick it up with some sort of metal thing and then put it in the fire just to <laughs> try out or something it it's just weird well, in a way well and the thing is is that that goes back to why did they need dr dorian yeah. because they had everything there they had all those chemicals everything and so they knew what was what needed to be done sure maybe they didn't know the process but i would think if you know if you have the materials needed to revive this plant that you probably would know the process as well but it doesn't matter anyways because towards the final like two uh two-thirds or so of the episode episode they get rid of dr dorian and then botanist comes into his home and steals his notes on the gargoyle vine and it intends on reviving the plants himself so i'm just like it's it's goofy once again it it really it makes no sense when you think about it Mm -hmm. so yeah and then once they uh revived uh, the gargoyle vine. The next thing that you know is that uh, Commander Spider and some of the minions that went along with him, they drive this uh, floral uh, well, this truck that's sort of disguised as a floral thing, goes to a coffee shop there. It's like, oh, we're replacing plants. And they take one of the plants that's from this coffee shop or cafe with the vine and it's like, hey, you're not the regular guy. It's like, oh, the regular guy has a flu, and then they walk off. And then I uh, also liked um, before uh, they cut to the next shot, Commander Spire is like, just reduced to a flower deliverer or whatever it was and throws his hat down on the ground and then just drives yeah. off. I... Um I uh, like the fact that just within the first three episodes, I find that the miniature work continues to 
improve and become a bit numerous, at least within these first three episodes. Because, you know, one of my complaints with the first episodes, we didn't get a whole lot of miniature destruction. Episode two with Nucleon improved upon that a little bit. And then this one improves even on those two episodes. Um, I like that an awful lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I um, too, I, I love the fact that throughout the series, because I mean, it's been over three and a half years since I last saw this series. I love the fact that we get uh, robots and living organisms as bad guys for giant robot to fight uh, over the course of this series. I like how we get a mixture of a bunch of different things where, you know, it's not the same thing. And I don't mind robots, but. The thing is, is you usually have to create a really cool robot to really get my attention as far as a villain goes. And I don't think uh, – like Red Baron, for example, is one of those shows where all the giant baddies for Red Baron to fight are, of course, robots. That is a very hit-and-miss uh, series in terms of those robot villains, I think. Um, but I think when you add living organisms, it just makes things more fun and more interesting because you just get weird space creatures or other earthly organisms that – there's just something about living creatures that I find to be more interesting. I think part of it is just because they're living. They are more expressive. The actors make them more expressive, whereas robots, they know, hey, these are not living creatures. They don't have emotions. They don't feel pain. So everything is more – um, sort of uh, rigid mm -hmm. in their in their performance. Yeah, and as far as the whole uh, battle sequence between uh, Gargoyle Vine and Giant Robo, there are some instances where, it's like, uh, Giant Robo is trying to hit him, but it's just like <laughs> all you're doing is just trying to punch air. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's yeah and then of course there are some instances where he judo chops some of the gargoyle vines vines and everything but then the way how uh gargoyle vine sort of subdues uh giant robo here for a moment was just you know ob the obvious thing is just wrapping around uh giant robo and just sort of disabling him in a way which Sora does and you see Giant Robo on the ground and then it's also a bit unique as far as the weakness for Gargoyle Vine which I think it should have been obvious from the beginning because like a lot of the plants and stuff are you know weak against electricity and as well as fire i mean fire should have probably been one of the other <laughs> weaknesses that they should have thought this of pokemon now yeah <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah the only thing that they came up with was electricity is for me it's like it should have been fire from the from the get-go here <laughs> but hey i mean what what do you know um so they obviously use uh, le uh electricity through uh, giant Robo, which Giant Robo is a robot. Electricity, <laughs> what do you know? <laughs> uh, again, though, did I miss something? Because 
I don't recall seeing Dr. Dorian come out of his weird dazed state near the end of the episode. I, I saw him come out of that weird cut out in the wall and he falls down into his chair. But I don't remember seeing him fully come to. Uh, did he come to? Because yeah. I start to wonder, did I actually miss Yeah, that? you missed it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it was, it was, I thought we had another serious plot was, hole there. It was when <laughs> right after uh, uh, Gargoyle Vine wraps a uh, giant robo and the vines in uh, sort of temporarily disables giant robo and sort of continues on with the rampage and uh the uh the agents of unicorn and i yeah the other agents of unicorn were in that hospital uh room there where it was nearby where gargoyle vine was and you see the building shake and everything and that's when uh dr doran comes to okay yeah i i must have missed it okay yep because <laughs> i don't remember anything mm-hmm so yeah, he was he's alive <laughs> after being okay. drugged there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you want to go into final thoughts and a rating? Uh, yeah, let's go into final thoughts and rating. As far as episode three, I think out of the three episodes that we've ta- uh, discussed today, I think this one is by far the best one that I've seen, especially with the introduction of Doctor Botanist. I think he himself, I think, really. Uh, makes the episode stand out in a way. He's an interesting character in and of himself. I just like the appearance of him, and I really like how he's going to be part of this entire show throughout. <laughs> and it, it's yeah. I just I also liked uh, whoever played uh, Doctor Botanist. I wish. They didn't really uh, list him in the the cast or anything. Um, I'm guessing it's listed elsewhere, but I just don't have it on me uh, right now. But I like the person who plays as Dr. Botanist. I think they, uh, whoever uh, casted him, I think they made a home run. (laughs) They made a home run selection in this one here. (laughs) And as far as practical effects, they do a heck of a lot more this time around as far as... Uh, having Gargoyle Vine go through Ravage, an actual uh, city, instead of being on the countryside. Although with some of like building destructions here and there, there are some instances where, like, you'll just see some chunks of a building just, you know, fall down and stuff just being intact. It's just sort of kind of brings you out just a little bit but as far as the characters um the battle sequences here and there i think is what made this episode really good and as far as a rating of 10 i give this one a nine all right uh for me the series continues to expand its use of miniatures and how weird yet fun it can be Dr. Botanist is a downright absurd but a fun villain. 
The battle between Giant Robot and the Gargoyle Vine is incredibly entertaining and is satisfying with enough miniatures being destroyed and a battle length that is perfect. While this series has some obvious flaws, it's a show that is incredibly entertaining and despite some of my criticisms, it's a show I love and am still excited to revisit. And I also gave it a 9 out of 10. Um, and the thing I wanted to discuss, I wanted to do this before we even dived or dove into uh, all of this, um, was sort of uh, kind of similar to what we do with our commentaries, and that is our hi- history uh, with this series and sort of what our general thoughts were. And so I'll go first. Um, I got this series back in October of 2014, and I believe I had watched it with – started watching it within the first month or so after receiving it, and um, I immediately fell in love with it. I, I realized this was the sort of thing I was uh, looking for, and it just was entertaining yet absurd, as we've been saying throughout this entire podcast and probably will continue to say in subsequent podcasts because this is a children's show. Uh, again, there are tons of plot holes and just weird shenanigans that really, when you think about it, don't make sense, but what are you going to do? Um the last time I went through this series was back uh, late – it was like mid-late December of 2016, and uh, I went through the series in about five-ish days, and um, it's – I loved it an awful lot, if not more so then, and I remember watching many of these episodes like it happened yesterday, and like I said, we're going on almost four years now since I last watched this series. Uh, I love it. Like I said, I love the, the strange sub-bosses that eventually are going to come through in this series. You have Dr. Botanist, uh, was it Fangar, that eventually comes. Uh, he's this guy with this really big head that is bald throughout most of it, but he's got this uh, hair on the back and over the side it's just like that it, puffs out. It, it's just like it, in this uh, protruding front teeth. <laughs> I think this is the uh, the guy right here that's on uh, currently on display here. That's uh, Fangor with a protruding uh, head. Yeah, I mean it's just absurd, but at the same time, I, I love these villains. You know, despite the fact there's nincompoopery that really shouldn't happen. Uh, again, it's a kid show, and that's something that if you're someone who has not watched this series, you need to be aware of that when you go in. Is that um, the stuff at times is definitely not going to make sense, uh, but you just have to go with it. And if you're someone who just likes weird uh, science fictiony giant monster giant robot type stuff with other weird human characters, this is your series to go for. And I'm basically, I guess, sounding like I'm giving my final thoughts on this series before we're even done with it. But um, I, I loved I, I loved this series. This is my third time going through it. And, and again, I'm being reminded of, of the first two times I've gone through this series. Uh, again, like I said, I'm really excited to go through this series again. And uh, it's unfortunate it's going to take like eight and a half, nine months uh, to go through it because uh, I really almost want to go ahead and start finishing it now. Uh, but it's it's a fun series, I mean, and I mean that in a good way, Jason. I, I don't mean that I want to be done with this thing. It's like I want to sit down and watch it because it's so ridiculously entertaining. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But yeah, I just I love this series so much, and um, this is probably one of the few Tokusatsu shows I could sit down and marathon time and time again. It doesn't hurt that the series is twenty six episodes, but even if it was fifty some odd episodes, uh, I would love to sit down and just marathon this thing. Um, you know, this show along with the original Twilight Zone, the Adam West Batman. Um, the original Ultraman, Ultra Q, um, are examples of TV series that I love to revisit many times over, and um, it's 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 fantastic. It's entertaining. All I have to say is just wait until you uh, get the chance to watch Spectre Man. <laughs> that that one. I know I've had that for like several years, and I have yet to actually watch it. <laughs> believe me. Even though you keep telling me to watch Johnny Sacco and stuff the last few years up until I uh, – was it last year started watch well, a couple of years ago is until I started watching it. And then there was a time where I didn't watch or finish out the, the second half or the final disc of it up until several months ago. But I'm telling you now, if you have some time after uh, we get done – uh, doing uh, Toku Zone here, you should at least start the first few episodes of Spectre Man. You're going to love it. Uh, uh, screw when we're getting done with this. I may try to do that in the next few weeks. But like I said, though, my son's starting school here like next Wednesday. My daughter's starting school like two weeks after that. Just trying to prepare for the these podcasts going forward now for a while is going to be very tough <laughs> for me. Well, you got you got the the entire weekend here. <laughs> to, That's not always easy, dude. <laughs> just, just, believe me, just just try to check it. No, check no. it out. You believe me? You don't have children. <laughs> just at least check check the first few episodes out of Spectre Man. <laughs> but, oh, I know. I intend um, on doing that. Hopefully before the year's out. <laughs> but yeah, as as I mentioned earlier, I I bought the series. Oh gosh, I, I maybe three four years ago, and for and I haven't really watched it up probably until uh, 2018 until Kent convinced me. <laughs> To finally get around to watching it so I did but then I didn't get around to finishing it out from to the final disc up until uh, several months ago here so uh, Johnny Sacco the, the series itself has more or less been a more of a recent watch uh, for me so it's sort of kind of rewatching it all over again maybe like a couple months later that's how fast it sort of <laughs> got to me here so at least it's sort of nice to relive some of these uh earlier episodes i've seen back in i'm guessing 2018 which when was the last time i saw these first few episodes yeah, I mean it's it's a fantastic series. I mean, if you love crazy, absurd stuff, this this one will definitely tickle that fancy of yours. Yeah, <laughs> a lot a lot of these, <laughs> a lot of these tokusatsu TV shows are really great. <laughs> yeah. So with that 
Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we'll be back in probably a couple of weeks. Let's see. Right now, we're probably looking at I'm pulling up my Sometime calendar here. September. Okay, so I don't want to do it the fifth because I will definitely be very busy that day. Um, let's push it to the twelfth. Shall Sounds we? good with me because I know. So we get an extra. Yeah, because I know the fifth. That's basically Labor Day weekend, which I know some people are going to probably do their own thing, vacation. Well, probably maybe a little bit of road tripping here and there, but yeah, uh, twelve sounds good to me. Yeah, well, and I'm cleaning the house because that's the first weekend, and I that's when I do it. Um, how about two instead of three episodes? Let's do four because we'll have an extra week. Uh, sure, why not? So we'll cover the next four episodes of Johnny Sacco uh, for the next episode, which will be September twelfth uh, at same same Tokusatsu time, same Tokusatsu channel. <laughs> and uh, before we leave here, I just want to mention again about our uh, streaming podcast networks. As far as streaming, obviously YouTube. Uh, we're also on Twitch, Facebook Live, Periscope, and D Live. So. Um, if you're on the go and if you have a smartphone, obviously, uh, you can find us on these uh, streaming networks. And as far as uh, podcast networks, obviously, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and TuneIn. And as well, if you have a smartphone as well, you can find us on any of these uh, podcast uh, networks. And as far as uh, social media, you can like and subscribe to us on these uh, follow following uh, social media uh, websites. Just search for Daikaiju Network. And you can also find us on our own website at daikajunetwork.com and so with that thank you guys so much for listening and or watching and we will see you in a few weeks alright see you guys later take care in a few weeks